the evidence is overwhelming at this point. The damage that school does to students, both to their, their physical and mental well-being. Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host. And if you're a longtime listener, we are so happy to have you back. And if you're new to this space, we hope you not only enjoy what you hear, but that it challenges you to think deeply about the current and future experience of schooling that we create for our kids. Today's episode marks our 55th discussion about the modern world of education. And today, my friend and colleague, Bruce Dixon, and I interview John Warner, who's an affiliate professor at the College of Charleston, a blogger at Inside Higher Education, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and most importantly for our purposes, the author of a brand new book titled Why They Can't Write, which takes a look not only at the problems with writing instruction in schools today, but also at the very real ways that current models of schooling fail to prepare students both for today and for tomorrow. It's a powerful conversation that I really enjoyed having, and I know you'll be thinking hard after you hear it. Don't forget, if you're listening to this podcast before February of 2019, enrollment is already open for our seventh cohort of Change School, our eight-week masterclass that comes with lifetime membership to our modern learners community. Just visit change.school for all of those details. And you can check out all the new offerings that we're rolling out through the end of 2018 into 2019 by going to modernlearners.com. We've got labs, we've got courses, we've got new white papers and all sorts of other goodness for the holiday season. We hope you'll check that out. Finally, if you like what you hear today, we'd be so grateful if you could make a quick stop at the Modern Learners page on iTunes to leave a review and a rating. And if you have any questions about anything you hear or read on our site, please feel free to reach out to me directly at will at modernlearners.com. But for now, here's our 45-minute or so conversation with John Warner. Enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. So, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. And uh, congratulations on the book. And, and it, it doesn't officially come out until next week. Is that right? Well, it's sort of a, a soft opening, I guess. So there's, some, there you go. There's, some, there's some copies that are getting out there. I think if you ordered it straight from the publisher, you're getting it. Um, Got it. But I, part of it is, uh, knock on wood, the reception has been... Uh, the pre-order reception was good enough that I think some of it's just kind of gummed up at, at the shipping and receiving level. So if you order it now, it'll it'll arrive shortly. Well, that's, that's a good problem to have if you're an author. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Could no be worse. Right? Yeah. So um, I, like I was telling you before we got started, I did get a chance to, to read through most of it in the last couple of days, and I really enjoyed it a, a lot. Um, I'm, a, I'm a former expository composition teacher in high school for like 18 years, so, wow, so, many okay. of the, yeah, so many of the things that you were talking about in a writing context uh, really resonated with the way that uh, I thought about my work even back then, the whole grades part and, and a lot of the other stuff, and we'll get into that. So I think what we'll do is I'm going to take the first couple of questions here, um, which will be about writing, you know, and and uh, just the way that that's kind of playing out in your eyes. And then Bruce and I both will will uh, get into some other more existential questions around school and around, um, you know, what uh, what our kids need to be able to do and, and how schools are helping them with that or not helping them with that. But Sure. Um, you know, I found it interesting. We talk a lot about agency, and I know you talked a lot about agency in, in the book as well in terms of student and teacher agency both. And 
Um, my sense of it was that you feel really strongly that agency is uh, just a crucial part of the writing process and in many ways the key to uh, improving writing. But one of the problems right now is that it seems most schools are still teaching kids how to write for the test. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of tension and, and maybe some of the things that uh, especially writing teachers, but certainly teachers in general should be thinking about when it comes to how they have their kids write in class? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one, one of the things that I've, I've come to embrace over the years is that the thing writers do when they write is make choices. Uh, choices of audience, choices of purpose, choices of message. Uh, I've just named the rhetorical situation. And when we let students operate with as much freedom as possible within those contexts, they write better. Uh, they're writing about things they're interested in. They're uh, intrinsically motivated to continue to pursue uh, the crafting of their message. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's essentially the conditions under which I do my own best work as a writer. And my belief is if I work best in this mode, why not do everything I can to help students uh, experience that, that same mode? So the, the goal of... Uh, sorry, lost for that. The goal of, of for me as an instructor was always let's tap into what students are interested in. Let's work from where they're at in terms of uh, existing base of knowledge that I can build upon, and let's get them writing a lot. Uh, that's that's really one of the chief goals of how I approach it: is read more, write more, and you will learn more. Uh, and a lot of of I think what's happened in assessment in schools, certainly over the last 20 years, maybe longer, I, I trace sort of the, the origin back to the a Nation at Risk report in 1983 that I believe kind of kicked off the worst of, of what's happened, is a desire to prove competency, to show achievement on what is in reality a very narrow band of writing, uh, which in a lot of cases turns into the quote-unquote, five-paragraph essay. Uh, so agency, when we remove it from students, I, I think it, it causes all kinds of problems, including making them unhappy and stressed uh, and anxious. So if, if we can re return that, if we can give them as much as possible, make them as responsible as possible for their own learning, I, I think they do better, not just do better and learn more, but are, tend to be happier and more engaged and uh, more eager to get at whatever I'm asking them to do. So uh, there was one quote in the book that uh, I think kind of summed up your angst about the whole writing situation. And that is, uh, you say, I'm tempted to say that the way to improve student writing is to simply do the opposite of everything we've been doing. In a way, this is true. It would be difficult to design a system more poorly suited to our putative goals than the one we have. Um, so what, what, what would a writing classroom look like? I mean, as someone um, who did a lot of writer's workshop, you know, Don Murray and Nancy Atwell and, and all those folks back in the 70s and 80s, um, what would a modern writing workshop look like? Because certainly many of those writing contexts have changed now, and right. there are just lots of other different forms and audiences and whatever else. So if you, if you could build one, what would it look like? Yeah, so, well, a workshop is not a bad model. In fact, um, what I use in my classes is not workshop, but laboratory. 
and, and the distinction I make between workshop and laboratory is it's mostly semantic and it's, it's so it makes sense in my head where a workshop, which can be a place to create things, but can also be a place to fix things. Uh, for me, a laboratory is then a place to try things and experience things. And sometimes we're going to blow ourselves up. We're going to pour uh, test tube B into test tube A and some noxious cloud of gas is going to come out and be like, wow, that was a disaster. We shouldn't have done that. We're going to learn something from that disaster. So uh, I like a class where I try to structure my classes where uh, I essentially give students what I call a writing related problem. Uh, and it's often in the form of a question. Uh, and then I ask them to try to solve the problem. Uh, we'll look at models. We will discuss what we see in those in terms of the kinds of audience questions the author might be answering, uh, the structure of those answers, how they're moving from one part to another. But then I just ask them to do it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to plug another book I have coming out. It's called The Writer's Practice, Building Confidence in Your Nonfiction Writing which is a book of these experiences. And in fact, if you, if you read uh, Why They Can't Write, they're uh, essentially modeled 95% similar to the experiences you saw in, in that book, uh, just sort of written right. in a way where they don't have to, you don't have to have a teacher present to do them, although they certainly can be done in class. So I, I'm looking at the book right now. Uh, I have a, a, a question like, uh, you did what? <laughs> and that <clears throat> produces something that I call an adventure report, which is really just a, a, a work of descriptive writing. Uh, what we used to call a descriptive essay when we taught modes, which uh, is how I was first introduced to teaching right. writing as a graduate student. Uh, I've got another question of who are we, which uh, is a, uh, if I'm describing it from an assignment standpoint, it's a rhetorical analysis of a television commercial. But the purpose is to uncover uh, knowledge or insight about the culture based on looking at a part of our culture, in this case, a, a television commercial. I've got another one that is just what if that turns into an alternate history analysis. They have to take a moment in history, imagine something different happened, and then write what they think that is. And, and all these are works of analysis, the works of, uh, you know, making observations, drawing inferences, coming to conclusions, and they're the kinds of thinking that ultimately, I believe, translate to a more traditional academic task, right? Like if they have to look at a text and do an analysis. But it's the underlying thinking skill that they're practicing. So a lot of it is, it's a laboratory where we're gonna try stuff, we're gonna practice, we're gonna share our results, we're gonna do a lot of collaborative work uh, with, with uh, not just me, but students working together. One of the things I often strive for is, uh, you know, it's groups of students talking together where I'm eavesdropping and largely unnecessary to, to what's going on as they're sort of teaching each other. Uh, that sometimes takes a while. You have to build an atmosphere where that can start to happen. Um, but I know it's possible. Uh, it, it doesn't always work. You often have duds of assignments and experiences. Uh, if you've taught for that long, you've, you've certainly, I'm sure you've tried things where you're like, I thought this was going to be fantastic. And then for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But that's part of the spirit of a laboratory is you're going to try an experiment. Right. I'm very open with my students that uh, we may, what we may be doing is a true experiment. Uh, and in fact, when I haven't done something before, I'm up front. I just say, I've not tried this before. Let's see how right. it works. Uh, and let them be critical of 
that process critical in a good way, sort of me sharing my intentions, them experiencing those intentions and saying, hey, you wanted us to do this, but we think something else would be better. That's, that's a writing class to me, not just sort of producing a series of artifacts that I'm going to judge at the end based right. on my grading scale. Uh, I, 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 I taught that way. I taught that way for years. A lot of, of my evolution was becoming you know, disenchanted with what students were experiencing under that sort of model and looking for something different and uh, a, a lot of experiments since then. So I remember when I was teaching writing, I, I, I stopped grading it because I couldn't justify giving a kid who may have had really great writing experiences before coming to my class and had some special aptitude. I couldn't justify giving him an A based on, you know, just the writing. And then some other kid who was working his butt off to try to improve his writing, but didn't really have that quality. You know, that person gets a C. I mean, that didn't make any sense to me. And so um, it, it is something that I think is, is really hard when it comes to how do you create conditions for kids to actually get better and then evaluate them on, you know, how, how much effort they're putting into that and instead of the quality necessarily of what they're writing. Um, and, you know, we did a lot of portfolio type of stuff as well. Um, so I, I want to ask you just one more question about writing and then we'll get to kind of schools writ large. But you, another quote that you had that I thought was interesting and it kind of speaks to what I asked you earlier too. You said, you wrote, uh, we're trying to figure out how to preserve sustained, logical, carefully articulated arguments while engaging with the most exciting and promising new literacies. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what are the new literacies that you see that kids need to have and, and how do we kind of maybe try to get to that in schools? Yeah, the, the, this has even been developing since I turned the manuscript in and published the book. I, I feel even more strongly about this now than I did at the time I wrote that sentence. Where one of the fundamental skills uh, I think any person in the world needs is the ability to uh, take in, assess, sort through, and judge the volume of information that comes into them through digital media including social media. And a lot of the things that uh, school teaches, the processes school teaches to do this, are simply not up to snuff. Uh, for years I taught uh, <clears throat> what, uh, it has different names, but we call it the CRAAP test, C-R-A-A-P, to judge the uh, validity of sources, currency, right. relevancy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that works great when your students have been uh, sh shunted onto a library database. Everything they're looking at is reputable, even peer-reviewed in some cases, uh, and, and uh, it can work under those contexts. But when they are on Facebook or Twitter or just wherever in the world and information is coming at you, the crap test breaks down immediately. Uh, it, it has very little relevance and, in fact, can steer you wrong because many of these sources are invented to fool things like the crap test uh, to look current and relevant and authoritative and, and non-biased, even though they're, they're hugely biased. So that sort of understanding of information and digital literacies, I think, is a key. There's, there's a, a, a scholar and professor I'm going to plug here, a guy named Mike Caulfield, Right. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Holden. Uh, he's doing some work. He's got a book. Uh, I think the title is Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers. It's free. It's it's, yeah, it's great. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you guys have seen it. If yeah. I were, if I were redesigning my first year writing class, if I were going to go in and teach it, uh, next semester, I would be probably designing it around a book like that. We're going to do activities, writing activities that involve those skills, the skills <laughs> yeah. of working through those digital literacies. Uh, <clears throat> that in, my interest in that sort of went hand in hand with a continuing sort of distrust of, for lack of a better word, academic production, uh, students writing academic essays. I like I want them to think in the ways we expect good academics to think and to reason in the ways we expect good academics to reason, but to produce artifacts that live only inside of academia uh, just seemed less and less interesting to me, even though I am somebody who has produced those things. Uh, and even with this, with the why they can't write book, it's written for a, a university press, but uh, I was pretty invested in making sure it's, it's not wholly for academics. And in fact, there's some academics out there, they're going to read and be like, man, he doesn't have enough sources and he doesn't have enough research and he doesn't know he's not citing enough. Right. Uh, I, 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 I wanted to want it to be read by people, by parents and students and, whatever stakeholders there are out in the world who are concerned about this stuff. Uh, and the sort of writing I try to model in the book uh, is uh, I think the kind of writing students can and do do, I've seen them do it when they get invested in an issue that they think is interesting. Uh, they will produce something that even they were not sure they were capable of until they did it. And I think uh, the, having them do this in this sort of digital space where they can then share their work, where they can find audiences for it. Uh, there's a great New York times article today about uh, K 12 teachers finding ways for students to write for authentic audiences and sharing their work with the world and testifying how motivating that is for students. Uh, I just think that's, you know, we can take advantage of these technologies to help students and to to get their work out of the world it's it's uh, i think it's really exciting in a way it's dangerous it's scary given the the volume of misinformation and and uh hard to assess information that's out there but we we can help students sort through it and, and dive in and, and be sort of one of the good ones uh in that digital world yeah i think i mean you make some great points uh, john and and my my direct involvement in the spaces was more with younger kids. My undergraduate majors were in, in reading and writing. And, and of course, um, with, without going in too deeply, you know, there's an awful lot of, I think, uh, I'll just be generous and say misunderstandings of the role of the teacher in those early years in the development of, of writing. And you write, you know, when students are teaching themselves, they're learning even better. They're learning when a teacher is not present. The conditions they'll be required to work under once they even better their learning when a teacher is not present, the conditions they'll be required to work under once they've finished their education. So what is the role of the teacher then? Yeah, I, it's, it's uh, interesting. Writing this book really made me reflect on sort of my journey yeah. as an instructor. Uh, and, and it's really has been one where I, uh, over the years I've been gradually ceding more and more of my authority to students uh, and becoming much more of an instigator. Here's something, here's something to do, here's something to try. 
being a kind of backboard for ideas. Uh, one of the things my, my students often complain about is that when I, they ask me a question, I respond with a question uh, <laughs> to make them, you know, just continue yep, to think. Sure. They'll say, what do you, should, I, should I do this or this? And I'll say, well, what would happen if you did? Yeah version A versus version B. What, what are you weighing in your mind? Uh, and that often makes them frustrated, particularly when they're used to a system that asks them to essentially please the teacher, right? To, to, to suss out what the teacher wants sure. and deliver that. And I withhold that as much as possible. I, I direct them back towards the audience and the purpose and the message. Uh, so I, I see the teacher through a lot of uh, a sort of combination of lenses. I think we're a guide. Uh, I think we are and uh, we do have expertise. So it's not that uh, I'm not a pure non-interventionist. Uh, where I do see a student struggling, I, I'll, I'll try to help. Um, but one of, I, I've got a little section in the book uh, in favor of potholes where I think yeah. it's great for students to experience potholes on their way to to the end of a project yeah. uh that said if i see them about to drive off a cliff i i, I may drag them back and say i'm really worried about this although uh sometimes i've i've cautioned students i'm like man this this looks like a really tough thing I, i'm really really worried about it and they'll convince me they want to do it anyway and usually they're more right about that than i am uh you know so so i, I don't want to even extend that too far so um, but but as you're talking, sorry, as you're talking, you're, you're talking about um, a lot of teachers unlearning traditional practice, uh, you know, letting go of, of control. How, how do you, how do we how do we give uh, teachers the confidence to take that to take that approach in, in their work? Well, it's it's hard, and a lot of it gets to to my feelings about how we need to give teachers increased teacher agency inside the classroom in yep, terms of what yep, students absolutely. And uh, remove, you know, the, the sort of threat of assessment and evaluation uh, that's held over the heads of teachers, uh, particularly, you know, some of the some of the worst abuses, uh, like this value-added modeling nonsense and the things uh, that really are judging teachers on things that they had no input in, yeah, uh, let alone any input. Uh, I, I think one of the things, one of the important things uh, I, I would like to see us move towards is uh, worry more about students learning, less about the specifics of what they're learning. If they're learning, they're learning. Uh, to have to prove that every kid in a class has learned the same thing seems f sort of fruitless to me. I, I can't remember if I put this in the book or not. I, I have this in... in uh, a blog post I wrote, if I had my way, if I became sort of emperor of education and I could declare from on high, this is what we're going to do. My measurement for how effective a, a, a class is or a school is, is the child comes home. Yeah. You ask them, how was school? Yeah. And you start a stopwatch and you time <laughs> for how long they speak. And then you ask, what did you learn in school? And you start the stopwatch again and you time for how long they speak. Yeah. And you, it's, if you have to tell the kid to just be quiet already because you can't take it anymore, that school is doing well because that child is engaged. They're learning something. They're passionate. And I don't know why we need anything other than that, particularly yeah. in the early grades. 
yeah. uh, we do need to build some literacies and some skills sure. and and uh, you should learn your times tables and how to add and subtract and divide fractions, I suppose. I remember that. In the well, we'll, grade. we'll divide that one. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but the specifics of it uh, really, to me, and I, I'm not an expert in K-12 education, I, I see the more it's like what attitudes do students, students hold about school when they enter my college class? Yeah. And that's where I'm sort of most worried not their skills, not what they can or can't do. It's how they view the act of, of learning in school. Uh, uh, I, one of the books I, I cite in my book, and that was pretty influential to my own thinking by Susan Blum, who's a sociologist at Notre Dame, is, is the title is I Love Learning, I Hate School. And that was a direct quote from a student in one of her classes. And if students are saying that, we're in trouble. The yeah. school is divorced from learning. We're in. We're not doing something right, and uh, we need to reorient school, where those things seem synonymous. And so many students I've been talking to and working with over the last five, seven, eight, ten years, essentially since No Child Left Behind, uh, and even before that, in certain states that were kind of on the on the bleeding edge of that, before No No Child Left Behind they do not see school and learning as synonymous. Uh, and, and my goal would be to put those, make sure they're synonymous. And my belief is uh, teacher freedom, teacher autonomy, uh, and, and teacher accountability, more of a self-accountability, more of a let's give teachers time to develop, to collaborate, to uh, learn more stuff that helps them get better at their profession. Uh, that's what I would like to see our energies towards rather than uh, so much energy put into rooting out the very, very small percentage of teachers who are either indifferent or bad or incompetent. Uh, the, that number is so small, but the amount of time and money we put, in, put into trying to achieve that system is so great. It, it's just, it, it baffles me. It boggles my mind. It's, um, it's terrifying. And, and also, I think I often use the word absurd when you start thinking about it, but absurd in its truest sense. By the way, we we actually did a, a podcast with Susan um, on love. I love to learn. I hate school. So yeah, it was one yeah. of the early earlier series. So just to move into that into that um, that broader space, looking at schools. You mentioned schools aren't failing; they're functioning uh, the way they were supposed to. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, there, we've set up a system where schools are primarily there to uh, uh, certify students at what uh, are declared important competencies, but those competencies, at least in my view, are often divorced from learning. Uh, I talk about Campbell's Law in, in, in the book, yeah. uh, where we've kind of decided a couple of metrics matter, and therefore we're going to put all our energy into this. Uh, Another book I'll plug, I might as well, uh, <laughs> is a book called The Testing Charade by Daniel Koretz from yeah. Harvard University. Yeah, we referred to it in, a, in the white paper on yeah. assessment. Yeah, so uh, he, that book, I think, is, is highly persuasive on even if you see advancement in test scores, it may not mean anything. And in fact, it may not only not mean anything, it may mean bad things, you know, that we've gotten rid of important things in order to boost scores. So uh, I think 
man, I, I, I wish, I wish I had like a solution. I, I think a lot of it is sort of, uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of time, energy, and money put behind so-called school reform. And along the way, uh, a, a belief without evidence was adopted that if we could show advancement on these tests, we will be doing better. And that proposition was never proved to me. Mm-hmm. Certainly time, I think, has proved it, it was not an accurate proposition. Uh, and the notion that we could get to a better test or a more accurate test or a more meaningful test, I think that has not come about to happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of this has happened from, from top down. Governments deciding these things, uh, philanthropists, uh, well-meaning philanthropists, I, I, I don't really mean to, to suggest yeah, otherwise, uh, but they sort of latch onto a theory, uh, impose it upon people from above and, and teachers, uh, practitioners, students are not listened to in this equation. That's how I finish my book is like the experts on learning are, are teachers and students. This is not to say parents and administrators and governments and citizens citizens are not stakeholders in this. They are. Uh, but the experts on learning are the people who are, who are doing the teaching and those who are, are meant to be learning. So why aren't we listening to that? And after this short break, we'll be back with part two of our conversation with John Warner. Hey, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's likely because you understand that we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it can be. Modern Learners Community is the home for global educational leaders who are igniting the movement to fully reimagine the school experience for all learners. If you are someone who is in a position of educational leadership or who someday aspires to be, and you want to surround yourself with others doing this difficult and vital work, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners Community. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of MLC, and our Learning Commons will help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. MLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you reimagine the school experience for the learners in your schools. When you become a member of Modern Learners community, you will be challenged, you will be heard, you will question, you will gain clarity, and you will learn. Visit modernlearners.com slash mlcommunity and click subscribe now to request your invitation to MLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement, and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making MLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. Let's create a whole new experience of school together. I think uh, I, I totally agree with you that the voice that the learners or the educators have isn't heard very often. And, and I think that that leads to a lot of frustration because obviously they're, they're trying to do something um, that maybe they don't actually believe in, in terms of getting kids to pass a certain test or to get a certain grade or whatever else. And I think it shows up, you know, you, great, you had that great example of how you said to your, some of your students, look, I'll give you an A. You don't have to do any work at all. 
Um, but the only thing is you can't tell anybody about it. And, and like 80% of your kids said, yeah, I'll take that deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, we, yeah, purely also, hypothetical, purely hypothetical. Yeah, we, we yeah okay. To, <laughs> part of an in-class exercise to get a student attitudes, but yeah, they, they, that's, and they're, they're a hundred percent honest about it. They, they it's like, what's right. important is the A, the A is what matters. So I'll take the A. Right. Which is a, is a commentary on, on what the, you know, what the situation is in schools right now. I don't think that that's just in college, obviously. I think that happens especially through high school um, where kids, I, I know my own kids were basically only concerned with how do they figure out what the, what the path is to get the grade that they need in order to move on to the next class or get to college or whatever else. It wasn't really about learning. It was about how do you do school and how are you successful at it? Um, I want to bring up one other piece though that I thought was interesting because it, it, it came up a couple times in the book and that is the emotional state of our kids today. And um, you had a couple quotes that I thought were interesting. You said, number one, Students are not coddled or entitled, they are defeated, which I thought was really powerful. Mm. Um, and then you quoted um, a, a survey, I guess, or a study that said 41% of kids said they frequently felt overwhelmed by all they had to do during their senior year of high school. And um, you know, one other podcast we did was with a, a guy by the name of David Gleason who wrote a book um, titled At What Cost? And um, he, he looked at that, you know, looked at the kind of uh, um, different commitments that we have, that we make these commitments to kids, that we want them obviously to be happy and healthy and that their well-being is first and foremost. But then we do all these things that kind of subvert <laughs> their happiness yeah. and their wellness <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'd just love to hear your take on that since you brought it up a couple of times. I mean, what is it that you see that, that we're doing? And, and I guess the other question I'd have for you is, don't we know this? I mean, don't we know that we're doing this? And, yes. and if so, why yes. don't we stop? Oh, man. Wow. Uh, yeah. Don't we know we're doing it? Absolutely. We know we're doing it, right? There's the evidence is, is overwhelming at this point uh, of uh, the, the damage that school does to students, uh, both to their, their physical and mental well-being. And I, I came into this sort of... Um, very organically. I, I, I write in the book uh, about how I was seeing a record, this was probably six or seven years ago now, what I was calling a, a record number of student face crumbles. And the face crumble was when uh, some bit of information would come to their way and their mask of I'm a happy, competent, um, successful student would slip and I would see utter distress on their face. And I was seeing more and more of these in my office when I would conference with students. Uh, I was the, the anxiety apparent on their faces. And then sort of the, the tipping point for me was when I was in, in a class and uh, I, it's like class is starting. Hey, only two weeks left. Right, guys? Like exciting. And a student burst into tears. And uh, the student was um, apologetic and a little bit ashamed. And uh, I, I felt bad because certainly saying there's two weeks left of school was not intended to, to ratchet up any sort of pressure or, or right. uh, do anything like that. Uh, but they were feeling so much anxiety in the moment that hearing they only had two weeks to do whatever they had to do was uh, caused that mask to slip for a moment and, and caused that, that breakdown. And so I started digging into the data at that point, uh, like that uh, 
survey you mentioned, which is from the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA, where we see this increase, uh, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like in 1985, the number who were answering, I was overwhelmed by all I had to do senior year was something like 17%, and now it's 41%. Uh, the numbers of students who are seeking uh, counseling for anxiety and depression has climbed exponentially. Student suicides uh, continue to increase. And uh, school for sure is playing a role in that and the pressures of school. And uh, it's madness. It's madness. It, it really it is not necessary. Uh, the idea of school is a gauntlet that must be run or if you don't run it well, like, uh, like it's the Hunger Games or something, there's gonna be one of you at the end of it. Everybody else is gonna be uh, stung to death by bees or eaten by some sort of bee or stabbed with a, with a spear. Uh, students internalize those feelings, whether for years I tried to dissuade them. I tried to say, no, 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 you can screw up, it's okay. I got these in, in college and I'm, I live to tell the tale. And I don't think that's sufficient. Uh, they certainly, students don't feel that, that that's okay. Uh, they perceive any sort of little bobble as failure. And when we're subjecting them to so many assessments that they are told very explicitly are quote unquote high stakes, mm -hmm. what else are they going to internalize other than this really, really matters. And that is just not a, a condition under which anybody can perform their best. And I think we're only going the wrong direction. I've got a chapter, uh, you guys know, uh, the problem of surveillance, how right. students are, yeah. are more watched, more tracked. Uh, uh, I, I had a little exchange on Twitter this week with some, some high school teachers who similarly how we need to shut down the grade portals uh, that give uh, students so much anxiety about their information being tracked. One teacher spoke about how uh, he would get up early and sort of enter his grades at like three or five in the morning and students would get instant notifications when a grade came in, right. which would hit their cell phone, waking them up out of their slumber to see their grade in their class. <laughs> and that is nuts. I don't know. I don't know how else to put it other than it's nuts. Nobody does good work under those circumstances. And the thought that young people in the midst of sort of developing their selves and their identities and their intellects would do well under those conditions is bonkers. Uh, and and uh, I often sound like a radical when I propose these solutions, but the solution to me is shut it down. Stop it. Uh, yeah. Just don't don't use it. And fortunately, as a college instructor, I had that I had that uh, uh, ability. I turned off my grade book. Students couldn't see their grades in the grade book. If they wanted to know their grade, take out their stuff, do the calculation themselves. Yeah. Uh, if they're really worried about it, let's come have a conversation about it. But I'm not going to have a billboard chasing them around with their grade uh, available 24 hours a day. It, it it did no good for them whatsoever. And uh, Students in K-12 are, are tracked far, far more than, than college students. Uh, right. Apps like Class Dojo, where they're scored in real time. I mean, this is, <clears throat> this is it's, uh, I perceive it to be deeply damaging to, to now generations of students. Yeah, we agree. It's, it, it's interesting, John, we talk about the fact that we continually, we, we're quoting Russell Ackoff, who talks about doing the wrong thing 
right. And the more we, you know, the more right we do the wrong thing, the wrong comes. And it's also interesting that, you know, two or three times in, in this discussion, you know, I use the word absurd. You use the word bonkers. Um, you know, it does, it does become hard for us to describe the, the environment without, ex, you know, appearing to be extreme. And mm-hmm. I want to throw to an, another space that you mentioned around personalised learning. And we often, we talk about personal learning rather than personalised only because, again, there's been that um, appropriation of the word personalised to mean someone else is making decisions for you, usually a computer or technology. And in the quote you have here, you also mention another word which, which gets thrown around loosely, which is progressive education. So I'm interested in in just your thought. You write the progressive education roots of personalised education expressed a need for students to practise personal agency in the context of their schooling. The idea was not to customise lessons for students, but for students to customise the lessons for themselves. The original conception of personalised education also emphasised the social aspect of learning, something inevitably lost when personalised learning means directing students to screens and software. How do we take back that, that idea of agency, of making learning personal? Yeah, I mean, it, that, this, is, this is really sort of the area that, that I have my eye on next. And it's difficult to untangle because personalised learning as a term has essentially been seized by... Uh, a portion of the ed tech industry that that wants to sell something. Thank you very much for and, saying that. I really I really appreciate you saying <laughs> this is our favorite term. So anyway, uh, keep going. <laughs> uh, and the you know there, there's nothing wrong in theory with like personalized learning sounds great. Uh, I I see my assignments or what I call experiences as personalized, and that every student is writing about the thing they are most interested in. Uh, every student is writing on a different topic inside of a writing-related problem they're trying to solve. That is personalized. Uh, where I see things that are calling themselves personalized learning that are software and algorithm-driven, uh, they become more what, uh, in, a, in a post I read today from another one of my favorite bloggers and former high school teacher, Peter Green, who blogs at kermudgecation.com, uh, personalized pacing, as he calls it, is not the same thing as personalized learning. And personalized pacing is nothing new. Uh, he, he recalls the, uh, I never had this when I was in school, but they were like a reading, a box of reading. It's like, in, and you yep. could move through the box at your own pace. And so uh, that's, that's essentially sort of the version of personalized learning that gets sold to us in so much of this, this software. And I, I think it really, it conflates a lot of different things under this large umbrella and it's, it ceases to become meaningful. Uh, how do we take it back is a, is a really good question. Uh, uh, a lot of it I think is exemplifying that which we think is worth doing. Uh, a lot of it is uh, in the, in the blogging, I do it inside higher ed. Um, and sometimes I just, I feel like a crank because I'm constantly going after the sort of ed tech products I think that are, are most egregious in appropriating the language of personalized learning for something that is not. Uh, I, I just counted, I've, I've now done six separate posts that are almost identical on the dangers of algorithmic grading of student writing. Uh, 
I mean, I, Bruce, I wish I had an answer for you. I wish I knew how to reclaim this. I think it's probably part of this larger thing of, of, of teacher autonomy, of uh, driving change from the ground up rather than the top down. In ratcheting down the, the stress and anxiety everybody feels over school, uh, we really are in a place of scarcity, scarcity of money, scarcity of time. Uh, a word I use in the book uh, repeatedly is precarity, which I don't think I coined, but I, I use all the time, uh, a state of precariousness. And uh, the way we've been, we've been rebounding from one initiative to another, uh, you know, I sort of brace myself from the next announcement from the Gates Foundation. What are we going to have to do next? Uh, what is going to get hundreds of millions of dollars of investment uh, without really being thought through or with the race to the top grants. Uh, I had a whole section of the book that I take out that maybe belongs in another where I, I collected a bunch of information on things that were purchased with race to the top grants that are no longer used. Uh, they they were bought, they were uh, tried and they were discarded. So um, it was, uh, you know, Money is a problem. We lack resources, but there's clearly is plenty of interested money about education. But those who see it as a marketplace as something to be exploited as as a chance to sort of uh, uh, make a killing with the ed tech solution that's going to teach them all. Uh, I, I just think we need to reject that mentality uh, whole wholeheartedly. Uh, it's not to say there's no ed tech products that can't be useful. I think there's many. And I think there's a lot of technology that has made my teaching easier and improved it for sure. But the idea that somebody's going to have a killer app that's going to solve the problems of teaching and learning uh, is just, again, it's another thing that's probably bonkers. And uh, people want to believe it, though. It's, it's, it's sort of, I say this in the book, it's kind of our, our, uh, an American weakness for the big, bold pronouncement. We want to believe and we have these faith in things. It's just at this point, when it comes to education, I think we have enough evidence to know there is no sort of big solution coming down the pipe that's going to solve these things for us. Just, just before I hand back to, to Will uh, on that, I think possibly the, the tragedy of this and bonkers and absurdity also fall into, into line is, is the amount of money that you're talking about. I'll, I'll be, I'm with you. Let's say it's all done in the best intentions. And you mentioned Gates. I mean, Gates's investment, it was $100 million in Ian Bloom. It didn't last two years. I mean, to think you could blow $100 million in this field when money is so scarce is absurd. And the money that Murdoch and Joel Klein put into their little... <laughs> to amplify, yeah. To amplify the world. I mean, yeah. where yeah. on earth could someone give us a fraction of that amount of money and we'll, we'll actually spend it where it makes a difference and it won't be sitting on the shelf in 12 months' time? Yeah. I have, I have a blog post uh, it's for Inside Herod going up tomorrow essentially thinking about how we refuse in so many ways, we refuse to look at the roots of these problems. And I think about that in, in teaching writing where uh, people lament how poorly college students write, except the average college instructor, the sort of job I had has double the number of students than recommended by disciplinary experts. So the, 
most obvious solution is to double the number of people teaching writing and have the number of students they're working with. And so if somebody wants to give $100 million to uh, a bunch of community colleges to reduce the loads from six classes a, a semester to three, you will see tremendous gains in student writing just by doing that. Mm-hmm. There's no product at the end of it. There's no uh, application that we can go sell to some other industry, but there will be results. And, and I promise that that is true. I know it because the difference in my own teaching from when I've had 150 students to when I've had 60 is, is significant. Because 60, while still a lot, is doable. 150 is, is not. It's, just, it's an impossibility. So, again, we really appreciate your time, and I want to finish up with just one more question. And sure. you, do, you do get to some suggestions, and you, you outline some goals, and I think the goals are great. And, and what I want to do um, is just, you know, since time is so short, just in general, and since money is so tight and everything, that um, there are lots of barriers to making the types of changes that we need to make. I'm wondering if you could just just maybe select the one of these five that you articulate in the book that you think is maybe the best starting point for people who who want to make significant change in the school experience. So the five are, you say, we have a number of goals, um, and these should be our goals. Number one, we seek to increase educational challenges while simultaneously decreasing student stress and anxiety related to writing. We seek to change the orientation of school from only preparing students poorly, as it turns out, for the indefinite future to also living and learning in the present. We seek to provide experiences designed around learning and growth rather than giving assignments and testing for competencies. We will end the tyranny of grades and replace them with self-assessment and reflection. And finally, we will give teachers sufficient time, freedom, and resources to teach effectively. In return, they will be required to embrace the same ethos of self-assessment and reflection expected of students. I mean, I know it's hard to probably choose one of those, but if there was one that was maybe a a more accessible starting point for change, which one do you think it would be? Well, they all sound good to me, I gotta be honest, but uh, (laughs) if if I had to choose one as the starting point, it's probably the last one. Uh, The the second is, I think, kind of our most worthy goal. Uh, I don't know if, if, if we can start with it though, I think the start is really giving teachers the freedom and autonomy, both in terms of time, respecting their expertise, giving them the, the time to develop their and grow through their expertise. Uh, as you know, teaching is really, really hard. And yeah. you are not a good teacher out of the gate. Uh, at least very, very few of us are. Uh, I, I think about the first sections of, of English 101. I, I taught as a TA in graduate school, and I, I want to I find those students and apologize to them. Uh, you know, I was, I was dedicated. I was, I was obsessed with doing well, but until you have the experience, you're not really as good as you're going to be. And at the same time, there's no terminal proficiency. I, I learn things every time I, I teach a class. That, that's, that's ongoing. So I would say the last one, because if we can create an atmosphere and a culture that allows teachers to work from the passions that the vast majority of them have, to uh, build on those passions through a system that rewards those passions to where a teacher can improve their lot or situation or pay, not by having to go take out a loan to get a master's degree, but by collaborating with others or mentoring uh, uh, younger teachers. 
newer teachers. Uh, I think we need those systems. So I think that's where we start. I, I, I feel like the, the teachers of, uh, of the country in America have just been besieged uh, for decades. And I do see some, some green shoots. I see some positive signs, uh, sort of the, the strikes going on that have gone on in Oklahoma and Arizona and right. West Virginia where, where their backs are against the wall. And it's just, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And uh, stuff happened. Change has happened. So if, if, we, can, if we can do that, I think, I, I think that's the place to start. The hard part is it becomes a chicken and egg question. Like, do we need to get rid of the testing and assessment regime on top of them before they can do this? Or can we empower teachers without getting rid of that? Uh, that's why it's hard to choose. But I, I really do think it starts with teachers. The teachers I've had, the teachers I've known, the teacher I've been, they want to do well by students. Uh, that's why they got into it. Uh, I, the book is dedicated, my book is dedicated to my grade school teachers who did more than anybody to teach me how to write. Uh, and I, I just sent a copy to my third grade teacher and, and uh, <laughs> it was sort of the, the most fun I've had in, in years to, to write a letter to her thanking her for what she taught me. Uh, if we can get to, to back to something like that where teachers are the well-paid, uh, respected professionals that they truly are, I think that's the starting spot um, that will require removing a lot of those other barriers, but that's, I think that's what we have to do. Well, listen, John, thanks so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. The book is great and uh, wish you a lot of success with it. And uh, here's to, if we have another conversation down the road to not using the word bonkers. Yeah, thanks. I, I really enjoyed it. I hope we get to talk again sometime. That would be great. Thank thanks so much. Bye. So thanks, John. Really, really do yeah. appreciate it. I'll just cut it off right there. But um, okay. that was a great conversation. Did I read that you remembered all of your elementary school teachers' names? I, mean, I did. That? Yeah. <laughs> That's I amazing. <laughs> uh, it's a little yeah. easier because I had, I had the same teacher for first and second grade, but it's Mrs. Craig, Mrs. Goldman, uh, Mrs. Thiel, Mrs. Minch, and Mrs. Chambers. That's Which awesome. My, I could even name all sort of when, once we started breaking out in uh, you know, like you go That's somewhere great. else for math, I could name them too. Uh, it, it, the, the hindsight I've, I've learned about sort of the um, extraordinary nature of, of the school where I grew up, which really it is just a neighborhood school in a Chicago suburb, um, but such an amazing background. I, I still have my fifth grade portfolio. I think I referred to it in the book. Yeah, you do. Uh, yeah. Where uh, in... 12 stories I write in 11 different genres and it taught me how <laughs> to write. Awesome. It taught me how to write. I mean, it really, yeah. uh, and I, I didn't write an, I didn't write a quote unquote essay until high school and nobody had to teach me how to write an essay because I already knew how to write. I knew how to think. Right. Yeah. Uh, and man, the despair I feel when I have see really bright, well-prepared students show up in my college class and they, they're defeated. Uh, that's what spurred me to, to write this. I, I hope, I hope people hear it. I, I, uh, I <clears throat> was close to, to getting a consulting gig on that, on the latest Gates Foundation writing initiative. And oh, really? uh, my connection we're, decided to leave. Just, you know, we're still, just a reminder, we're still on Facebook. So, <laughs> so uh, my connection decided to leave and that was the end of that. But I, I wish I would have, 
I would, lo- I would yeah. just love to be able to talk to them to sort right. of show them a different perspective because I, they're clearly, clearly well-meaning people. Right. Uh, but, at they, the end of the- but, but in all fairness, they, like many of these organizations, have been massively institutionalized and the bureaucracies they're built around that now probably far outweigh the sort of bureaucracies we see in state systems. And that, that negates any ability for them to really get connections with what really matters. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think that's the hard part. Cause even my sort of connection was through a connection and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the systems within which these things are happening. One of my frustrations is that teachers are almost entirely shut out of them. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, yep. and, as kids. As, and kids. Yeah. And as long as they are, as long as it's people who, uh, you know, sometimes I hate to use the, 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 the in the trenches phrase, because I don't like to think about teaching as kind of like right. battle or warfare, right. but there, <laughs> there is no, so it's, it's a metaphor I, I, I don't always like to go to, but, but experience matters. Right. Uh, and, and uh, knowing what's happening with students on a day-to-day basis and seeing it matters. I would not have known, you know, when I, when I talk to people and they, they want to tell me about students being snowflakes and coddled, I know that they haven't actually experienced mm. college students up close because it's really the opposite. They're, they're, right. They work more than ever. Uh, they're stressed about their finances. Uh, right. they're, they're worried about the loans they're going to have to start paying the, the second they get out of college. These are, these are not people who are kind of swanning through life like entitled right. uh baronesses these are people who are working really really hard far harder than i ever had to and right. uh it wears them down so i i i'm i'm grateful yeah. for these kinds of conversations i i hope i hope people who have the, the ability to make change start hearing them just curious where'd you grow up outside of chicago i grew up in northbrook illinois yeah, so I was in Elmhurst. Yeah, I grew oh, up in Elmhurst. So not, too far, not, not too from there, far from there. Did, anyway. did you go to uh, uh, Riders? I, I, I actually left. I left before uh, um, I was, I, I moved out here to New Jersey when I was 11, but I would have gone to okay. York. To yeah, York. Sure. I lived right around yeah. the block. Anyway. I have an aunt who's actually probably a cousin now that I think about it, but older, uh, a cousin <laughs> um, who she taught at York for probably four years. Oh, cool. Yeah, interesting. Well, listen. Thanks so much again. Really appreciate it. And uh, maybe uh, would like to. Maybe would love to revisit it down the road sometime too. You know. Yeah. And, uh, maybe when uh, when the writer's practice comes out, I'll. I'll there you uh, go. Comes out, comes out in February. I'll I'll make sure I can get you guys copies. That would be great. Oh, totally really appreciate thanks it. Thanks again. All right. Um, this, All right. And just you know, this uh, this will be out probably tomorrow at some point. Okay. Um, we got to get it out by Saturday, so we'll have it up soon. All right. Excellent. Yeah. Just send Cheers me a link, time. and I'll. I'll, uh, I will. I'll Spread it over Twitter and all that good stuff. Will do. All right, great. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Yes.